I mean, look, if you asked me a year ago that in a year's time, you'd be partners with Kevin Garnett in a new streetball league, I'd be like, what? You know, like it's, that wasn't on the roadmap 12 months ago, put it that way. Right. But you know, that it happens uh, because, you know, I think you got to be in, in it to win it and in the marketplace and opportunities come flow to you. Hey, this is Jesse here, and you're about to hear my discussion with Mike Salvaris from Pro League Network, which is creating bettable live sports. In this one, Mike shared a look behind the curtain at how Pro League Network is creating its own unique leagues, including titles like the World Putting League and Karjitsu. He also talked about the vast opportunity available to them by owning the underlying IP for the leagues and the steps they're taking to ensure that integrity remains top of mind for all stakeholders. This episode was a ton of fun, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This episode is brought to you by InPlay.ai, the leaders in AI-powered sports gaming technology. Discover how they're using advanced AI to build the ultimate second screen experience, powered by the only full-stack solution for micro same-game parlays, uninterrupted in-play markets, and fully automated risk management. To learn more about the future of sports gaming, visit www.inplay.ai. All right, we are back with episode 91 of the Betting Startups podcast. It's Thanksgiving week for all of our listeners in the U.S., which of course means a full slate of games for sports fans and hopefully a full plate of food for turkey fans. Unfortunately, though, for me being in Canada, we already had our Thanksgiving last month. So instead, I'll probably be eating a depressing turkey sandwich from Subway instead. But all that aside, uh, I'm really excited to welcome our guest for this episode, Mike from Pro League Network. And Mike, I saw you guys last month at G2E presenting at the Innovation Lab there, where I believe at that time you had just announced a new joint venture with Kevin Garnett's Big Ticket Sports to launch a new street-style three-on-three league, of course, purpose-built for betting, which we'll get into in a moment here. But that is only one of the many leagues you operate. So there's lots to discuss and unpack in our conversation today. But first things first, welcome to the pre-Thanksgiving edition of the podcast. How's everything going for you on the East Coast today? Yeah, Jesse, really good. Uh, getting ready for Thanksgiving. Kind of weird that it's uh, an Australian and Canadian talking about Thanksgiving or pre-Thanksgiving, but hey, we'll run with it, right? It's a great holiday. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I definitely won't miss the opportunity to catch some midweek football game as well. I'm still working while everybody else is off. But uh, as I said, great to have you here. We connected a few weeks ago on a prep call for today, and uh, it was really fascinating to learn about what you and your team are up to. And, and there's a lot of very interesting angles to explore here. But before we get into all that, it'd be awesome up front here, if you could spend a minute or two just introducing yourself, maybe talk a little bit about your background, some of the major chapters of your journey up until the founding of Pro League Network. Yeah, sure. So. I uh, started my career in Australia as a commercial litigation lawyer, actually. Liked law, didn't love it. So I went to business school and then joined McKinsey and Company after that. I was in their sports and gaming practice for about five years, working with you know, large leagues, teams on growing fan engagement, new technology, sponsorship, the whole thing. And it was super interesting, but got the itch to do something a little bit more entrepreneurial and operations. And part of what we, so we worked on, I worked on at McKinsey was uh, around thoroughbred racing. So I ended up doing a bunch of work in thoroughbred racing, including you know, working to redevelop a shuttered racetrack called Colonial Downs in Virginia. Um, and it's on that project that I met my co-founder, Bill Yucatonis. Bill's background is he was a CMO at Everest Poker. We spent a decade before I knew him in gaming and sports. And then yeah, we met up on a bunch of thoroughbred racing projects, both bricks and mortar and digital, and then decided to start Pro League Network around 18 months ago. And it's been a fun ride since. 
Let's just uh, stay in that moment of time, I guess, around 18 months ago at the origins of Pro League Network. Like, talk a little bit more about, you know, the conversation you and Bill had at the beginning and kind of what was it that sort of sparked the idea and then the ultimate genesis of what is now Pro League Network? Yeah, for sure. So we're looking at the sports calendar and particularly if you think about the wagering calendar, and this is somewhat unique to the U.S., but there is just a ton of overlap if you look at the major sports leagues. Three of the four sports leagues overlap in terms of season quite heavily, not only months, but also days of the week. And so if you look at that, there's also there's a ton of weekdays, you know, months where there's just not a lot of good betting content available, at least in terms of live sports domestically produced. And we looked at the thoroughbred racing industry, which is obviously something that we knew quite well. And if you take the U.S. racing, it's about $12 billion is bet in the U.S. on thoroughbred racing each year. And everyone thinks about the U.S., about the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness, et cetera. But the Derby is 1.5% of handle of wages of that $12 billion. You know, what is 55% of that, though? are claiming races and, uh, you know, races where there's the quality is, is so, so, but what they really do have in abundance is volume and distribution at different times of days where there's not a lot of other stuff on. So, you know, whether that be the Tuesday races, the Wednesday races, the morning races before the big card, you know, there's just a ton of opportunities, a ton of handle, I, I should say, that's generated around those times. And so we thought if you could extrapolate that to the sports wagering calendar where we know that there are gaps and if we could own those off-peak times, if you were, then there, there could be an interesting opportunity there. And so with that, we went out and we started Pro League Network and the idea being or the thesis being to really acquire and develop sports IP that we can control and redirect to those sort of off-peak times. And, you know, get those sports uh, regulated for wagering and make them entertaining enough that they'll appeal to a casual better. And so, uh, yeah, right now we have 12 sports in our portfolio, um, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, but everything from, you know, slap fight championship to professional putting, the, the world putting league through to the three on three sports, uh, three on three basketball uh, league that you mentioned that we're developing with KG. But in each one of those, you know, you will find a engaging sports content that appeals to the casual fan and is inherently better. Nice. Well, that segues nicely, Mike, into a bit of a deeper dive then. So let's just start right where you left off there. For folks listening that aren't totally familiar with Pro League Network, can you just give them a high concept overview? Kind of describe what it is you guys are actually up to and just what that overall value proposition is to the market. Yeah, you know, we are supplying bettable sports content that really has various avenues of monetization. One is obviously the betting. So, you know, our content uh, has been on DraftKings, Bet365, Betfred, Betway, and, you know, stuff that you could wager on. The second uh, source of value is for us, you know, driving fans of our sport to sports books in order to, to bet. So whether it's like an affiliate model, you know, the third way is obviously we develop quite an audience for each one of our properties. So that's an audience that sponsors find attractive. So there's a sponsorship element there. And then finally, there is a rights fee and, uh, you know, right monetization or exp exploitation that we can use. And it's not necessarily live rights. Like, you know, we didn't build this business thinking that 
CBS or NBC or ESPN will come and give us a, a fat check for live rides. I don't think anyone really thinks of that that today, but there are other avenues, you know, pre-recorded international distribution, for example, which are fruitful and quite a good business if produced efficiently. So we own and operate these 12 leagues. You know, we own the IP. We conduct the events. Like we do the league operations. We conduct the league then we control the production. So we stream the event, we staff the cameras, we staff the uh, the play-by-play commentaries, we do everything soup to nuts. We generate the lines and you know, the data and uh, you know we pass that data on and the stream for monetization in those four ways that I mentioned. Super interesting. It'd be cool to have you expand a little bit upon the portfolio of sports. You mentioned there's 12 and you know the three-on-three basketball, the, the slap fighting, but there's some, some more like esoteric ones. I know card jitsu is a big one, which is hilarious. But I guess what I'm curious about, Mike, to kind of go from here is like, who's watching these sports? I guess what's your audience or demographic? And talk a little bit about, I guess, just how these sports are resonating with audiences so far. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, almost all of our sports attract a core male 22 to 34 demo sports better that likes casual and engaging sports. So, you know, call it the for lack of a better term, the Barstool sports crowd. But, you know, the guys, mostly men, at least at this stage, unfortunately, we'd love to expand. But mostly male, you know, heavily into watching sports and watching casual sports. And, you know, most of our sports, whether that be our putting property or kajitsu or even tennis, uh, touch tennis, which we can get to in a, a bit. But, you know, that resonates with that audience. And then nestled within that, there's another cluster, which are the fans of the endemic sport underlying what we're doing. So even with slap fight and kajutsu, there's an endemic fan that likes combat sports that, you know, is somewhat looks something like our original 22 to 34 uh, year old male, but is also slightly different as well and slightly older. You know, the World Putting League, uh, Putting Property is an, is an example where, you know, the endemics is actually quite, is a little bit older and still. So we're talking about a more of like a 45 to 60 year old age group who uh, appeals to that sport. But because the way we produce it is fun, we're always trading the line between honoring the skill of our athletes and poking a bit of fun at them just because it's a fun sport. You're allowed to laugh, right? But because we produce it in that way, we do attract and retain that poor casual fan, better audience I was talking about, as well as the endemics. So it is a mix. And I think like, you know, with a sport like Kajitsu, for example, which is I can't remember, we got, I lost track now, but 70, 80 million views across for that. You know, we've only put out five or six fights to date and we've got another 20 or so in the can that we're sort of slowly putting it. So, I mean, there's definitely something about what we're doing that's resonating with that audience. And it's, you know, we've been happy that it's a retained audience too, because I think when you have a piece of viral content like that, it can be easy to point to large numbers and then wonder, well, will they hang around? Will they watch the next piece of content? will they actually be quote unquote fans of the sport? And I think at least now is uh, with that property is, you know, there is that retention there. There is that hunger for more content beyond just the, hey, I can't believe there's these two guys doing jujitsu in a car, which don't get me wrong, is a great point of attraction. But, you know, it, people stick around for the next fight and want to know when the next one is. And we have a long line of people who want to compete in that as well that we are slowly working through. I guess as an extension of that, Mike, for people that are tuning into this stuff, like how much are they tuning in, as you say, for the wagering aspect? It's just because it's something to bet on. It's unique content, perhaps, as you say, during the downtimes when the big leagues aren't on versus 
you know, actually building up some of these athletes into personas of their own and creating narrative and storyline around them? Like, what's the mix look like? And basically, what are people tuning in for? Like, what is the, what is the driver for these folks that are tuning in right now? Yeah, it, it is a mix. And I think that that's a deliberate choice by us because obviously uh, there's that clock and calendar thing that I mentioned before where there's where available and so it's something to bet on. But at the same time, I think, again, a person doesn't stick around forever if the content itself is not engaging, if there aren't interesting athletes to root for, if there's not good storylines or if it's not produced in an entertaining way. Our uh, thesis or, uh, you know, our internal mantra is that the content has to be interesting to watch, even if you're not being bet- placing a bet on it, in order for us to really touch it and to really feel like that is a uh, that is a PLN piece of content. You know, I think that there's plenty of content out there, international content. No disrespect to Russian and Ukrainian table tennis that's shot on the iPhone, etc. But there's plenty of content like that, which is just a pure, pure, pure betting product. That content has its place, but I think that we are definitely trying to elevate that a little bit more and provide stuff that is more interesting to your casual fan because I think that's what really helps with retention. That's what helps build us build a brand and spotlight some of our athletes. Some of the athletes that we highlight are the real deal in their sport. And it's been great to shine a spotlight on that. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, you know, it's been about 18 months thus far. You have 12 sports in market. I'd like to talk a little bit about the life cycle of creating a new sport. And you mentioned, you know, soup to nuts. You basically started at the very beginning at the idea phase through to launch and operationalizing it and producing it and distributing it, maybe to borrow a McKinseyism from your past life. I mean, you guys are basically fully vertically integrated, right? So I'm just curious, like if you can talk about the life cycle of a sport, like what does it look like at the very beginning, you guys sitting around in a room and coming up with a concept like Karjitsu? What does that look like? And, and how does, I guess, an idea emerge from the idea phase out to full production? Yeah. There's a mix of ways. So we have our, obviously, like idea board or a thing of like what we think could be interesting sports. And either that's because, you know, we've been approached by a partner who wanted to do something or, you know, we see something else on social media that could be interesting, that we're seeing a signal of something there that we think we could put an interesting PLN spin on and make it even better. But there is a list of stuff there. And, you know, we've got four or five criteria that we use to judge whether, you know, this is something that should be progressed. One of those things are, is, you know, do we think that we can produce a sport with sufficient integrity? Because obviously integrity is critical to what we do. We're developing wagering products. We have to get each sport licensed, you know, by the various state jurisdictions for wagering. Like we have to make sure that the, the sports books have enough faith in the product that they will be able to carry the line. So integrity is, is crucial to what we do. And so, you know, that is a big factor to determine whether or not we think that there is, uh, you know, that sport is going to fly up for us. You know, secondly, you know, we look at the ease of production and the efficiency of production. So is it something that we think we can produce at scale and repeatedly? And, you know, that discounts usually stuff where, you know, we need 30 people aside because it's just hard to do that at scale consistently or, or you need, you know, massive amounts of real estate to, to produce it. We're not going to do F1 racing anytime soon, put it that way. But, but, you know, we look at, you know, can we produce something efficiently and, and to our model? And then, you know, we look at, do we think the sport has enough of a casual fan interest that we think it'll pop on social media, et cetera, and that was to promote it, you know, and that sort of thing might rule out sports that I think may have a large endemic following, 
but doesn't translate to a large casual sport following. You know, we just can't make it interesting, funny or whatever to a casual sport fan. So in that case, and now those sports are sort of ruled out. And then there's a couple of other factors as well, but those are really the main ones that we look at. And so, you know, if we, if a sport satisfies all of those things, then we'll just sort of move into development mode and that can take various uh, phases, but, you know, generally we develop the brand, we do some test shoots, yeah, pre-recorded stuff. Yeah. Whether we think that the way we, we think we can produce it is actually compelling enough, right? Before we start to launch live content and then, you know, we'll, we'll do live content that's not for wagering for a little bit to see the market develop the audience and then we'll flip to live or wagering once we're so confident in the audience and we think that you know there's enough integrity there and we feel like we can take it to a sports book take it to a state regulator and they will approve it and, and carry it then we'll go from there so you know over time i think we've got 19 jurisdictional approvals across our sports including large states like new jersey maryland pennsylvania tennessee Arizona. And so we're proud of our sports are, have the honor of being wagered on in those states. And the regulators have chosen that to, to regulate that. Um, and that's really important to us. And, you know, those relationships with the regulators are very important to us. Yeah. I actually want to double click just for a moment on the integrity aspect of it. And I mean, you mentioned a few minutes ago, the Russian and Ukrainian table tennis and sort of harkens back to the early days of COVID when that was really all that was on. And obviously I think there was a few stories around that time that come out where there was let's just say some integrity issues with those sports. So I guess it's through that lens, Mike, and acknowledging that these sports that you're nurturing and these leagues that you're nurturing and developing are with athletes, but athletes that are, you know, not as well known and, and who knows what their backgrounds are. And I guess just like talk a little bit about, I guess, what those conversations look like with regulators, with the operators, and, and really what are the messages to them that give them the confidence to basically take your leagues on board and, and approve these things and rubber stamp them? Yeah, I think there's a trust factor there. And because we are who we are in terms of this is our business, we're not a, just a one sport, see you later. Like we're a multi-sport operator that takes integrity very, very, very seriously. I think there's a degree of trust there that we start with, you know, and we go through all the different factors that we look at and the, all the different procedures that we've put in place to ensure integrity on our sports. So I'll give you a simple example. Like when we first started our putting league, like the rules of professional mini golf was that if the ball was like next to a brick on the side, you know, you could kind of move it with your finger a certain unspecified distance. And that wasn't good enough for us, right? So we instituted a rule that each pair of golfers going around had to have an official with them. The official had to carry an eight inch ruler. Only the official could touch the ball. Uh, you could move the ball and it had to be eight inches or less, you know, from that. That's a little example, but it's stuff like that, that we think through with all our sports which is like, how can we go and take something that's kind of judgment-based and make it more rules-based just so the integrity is clearer to both the regulators, the sports book, and the fans. You know, we do that with all our sports very, very seriously. You know, the second aspect is obviously we employ the athletes, you know, we have control over them. And, and I think for a lot of them, like, you know, it's a big deal to them. Any wagering policies and all that is a given. But like, it's a big deal to them that they're part of this and they're grateful for the opportunity. And they, I think they see the growth in that. And we carefully work with athletes that, that we can trust and that we build trust for our sports. And I think the, the third aspect is obviously we use external monitoring parties like US Integrity, who's been a great partner of, from us 
to monitor any of the stuff that we have for wagering. So, you know, we've got several things in the mix there to help our sports have the best integrity that they can. And I think that we are, you know, we're very proud of what we've got. And I think, you know, we will always look to do more because it's really important to us. Awesome. So 18 months into the journey so far, and it sounds like there's a lot on the horizon here, but just so I guess contextualize sort of where the business is at today, like, can you sort of quantify or, or discuss the, the traction and, and the progress so far, whether it be, uh, you mentioned social media impressions earlier, or KPIs, like how can, yeah. you, how can you sort of measure, I guess, uh, where things are at from your perspective? So we've built an audience of about 600,000 um, across our brands, across social over the past year. We've produced 55 hours live content, which, and we're happy with the engagement. The engagement is uh, on average over about 50 minutes per user uh, per event with a 38% or, or above click-through rate to an operator from our content on our O&O. So we're, we're really happy with the engagement that we've got and the content, the amount we've produced at quality. Obviously, I mentioned the wagering approvals that we've been able to get. And we spend significant time, I think, across our sports trying to get those and develop those relationships, because I think that that's going to be important, you know, as we talk, talk about new sports in the future. And so we're proud that we've got those 18 approvals. You know, our content has been live on six sports books, the DraftKings, Betfred, Bet365, et cetera, that I, that I talked before. And so, yeah, I think this year for us was really about, I guess, producing episodic content. So... We do a putting event every month and we do, you know, a slap fight every, every month. And, you know, we've been able to show that we're able to do that, produce it cost efficiently, get some eyeballs on it and get some wagering on it, but also for it to be engaging. And then next year for us is all about producing it at scale. So we're going to open a, a dedicated facility on the East Coast uh, in Q1 next year, which will allow us to produce... 90% of our sports from, from that base. We also have a studio in Branson, Missouri, where we produce some of our combat sports. But between those two studios, we should be able to produce uh, 95% or so of the content that we generate. That'll just allow us to scale the amount of content that we're produced rapidly and efficiently. So right now, give or take, we're producing, call it half an hour to an hour of content per week on average. But we're going to go from that to about 30 to 40 hours of content per week this time next year. Cool. And then, you know, some of these leagues, I, I guess we would call them, I don't know, alternative sports or, or whatnot. I'm not quite sure what the right label is, but they're, they're niche. Let's call it niche. And I guess it's like long term, like, do you think any of these can become mainstream or is sort of your mental model that these will always sort of remain niche and, and you're okay with that? How do you sort of, I guess, reconcile that? And, and I guess, what is the ambition as far as what you think some of these leagues can ultimately become? And I can think we can talk about what is the definition of niche and alternative forever, by the way, but I won't go down there right now. But I think, uh, you know, if I look about across our portfolio, like we really do see it as a portfolio in the sense that some sports will be evergreen and consistently popular. Some sports, I think, will be even more popular for a shorter period of time, you know, but they'll be sort of flash in the pan sports that go up and then may have a shorter lifespan. And then there are other sports that we try that may be wildly successful and we spin out into a joint venture or into a separate entity. I think the important thing that we stress at PLN is, you know, we're not really tied to any sport in particular. What we're really, you know, the core of our business is the engine that's powering all this, you know, that's developing the brand, that's developing the operational know-how, the, the streaming, the, the wagering, like everything like that. We are essentially the engine that powers a lot of these sports. And so... Whether a sport has a very short lifespan or an elongated one, or it can be spun off into a mega business in a sense that 
yeah, we're built for all of, all of those uh, eventualities. You know, we talked at the beginning about this is ultimately purpose built for wagering, but you also mentioned there is adjacent revenue streams, which aren't to be ignored either. And I guess thinking about the business model of PLN, like if you had a pie chart with the different revenue models on there, like what does wagering represent there? And I guess what, what excites you the most from a business model perspective? I think that, you know, wagering by itself is somewhere between 25 to 30% of revenue. And I think uh, what excites me the most is the fact that you do have that varied business model, but because you're an IP owner, like there's a ton of other ways or interesting avenues you can explore. I'll give you an example. Most of our sports we're building for a studio format, as in no live crowds. So we can control the time and date very easily and we can do that. But we have been approached about doing a combination live show, like for our combat sports, where a couple of casino partners actually wanted us to do a live slap fight and kajutsu in their casino, which we'd sell tickets to and all that sort of stuff. And you know, that stuff is an interesting thing for us probably on the inner future roadmap to pursue, but it's not something that we counted on in our business model at any short point. But because you are an IP owner, it gives you flexibility to unlock a lot of these sorts of opportunities that I think will come in the future. So that part I think is very exciting, not only just you know, prosecuting what's in front of us, which we think is very, we're very excited about, but about the sort of the unknowns that could happen. I mean, look, if you asked me a year ago that in a year's time, you'd be partners with Kevin Garnett in a new streetball league. I'd be like, what, you know, like it's, that wasn't on the roadmap 12 months ago, put it that way. Right. But you know, that it happens uh, because, you know, I think you got to be in, in it to win it and in the marketplace and opportunities come flow to you. Yeah. hundred percent. Let's also quickly touch upon the fundraising side of all of this. So again, 18 months into the journey, you guys have done an awful lot in 18 months, by the way, and it sounds like some of this stuff you have done is resource intensive. So just to start with Mike, can you give us just a quick funding background or what have you guys have done to date on that end of things? Yeah, we've raised money. Eber Capital is our principal investor. So Roger Ehrenberg, Ethan, and Andrew, who have been amazing, amazing investors. They're, they're really, really great. And we've also raised money from Kevin Garnett and John Brankus, who's a multi-Emmy award winner, uh, host of Sports Science on ESPN. So that's been our investor group to date. And we're very proud about that. We also have Chris Grove as an official advisor on our team. Chris is, I know, an advisor to many companies, but he's only an official advisor to two of them. So it's been great. He's been amazing to, to have on our team, as is Jeff Ma, who's also an advisor to us. And so, you know, I think we like to say, and I believe it, that we've got the best investor and advisor group in gaming and sports. And, and I think that there's the team that we have around us is second to none. And we're really, really proud about that. And we are 14 days into um, raising our next round. And uh, yeah, looking, having a lot of really, really great conversations and looking forward to the future. Yeah, I was just going to ask, I guess, for the go forward capital plans. I, I know you're in the current process of raising a new round. So just to drill into that for a second, Mike, what are you guys looking for? And, 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 you know, what are the milestones with that new round? And I guess just to extend that, you mentioned some of the investors currently on the cap table, but what are some of the characteristics or profiles of new investors you're potentially looking to bring in? You know, the use of funds to that is you know, going to be things like developing that new studio that I spoke about before, as well as just upping the volume of, of content that we're producing. But you know, this will be around that we think will get us to break even sometime in mid-2025. We're talking to a range of folks, but if I had to sort of narrow it down, there's folks in the, I guess, the straight you know, gaming, gambling investor community that we know very well that we're talking to. There's folks in the I'd say the athlete and talent group, the parts of the world or that we're speaking to folks in media and media, media rights that people have done 
a lot of IP businesses before we're speaking to. And then there's folks in the, I guess a subsection of that is in the sports and the sports, sports leagues and teams. All those groups, I think, bring something unique to our story. And like, you know, that's the mainly the investors that we're dealing with. Right now. Because if you look at at us, you know, I think that we're interesting in the sense that, you know, we touch gaming, obviously. So there's a wagering, there's a pool of investors who are just interested in wagering products that we talk to. But then there's another pool, which is those who just strictly invest in media. And maybe they think they like media and they're curious about sports wagering and wagering, but don't know, quite not sure right vehicle to get into. And so those sorts of people that we seem to have, the conversations that seem to have resonated with as well. So look, let's mess about Like it's a, it's a difficult fundraising environment now. Everyone says it. I don't think we've felt it just yet, but you know, it's early for us in terms of our, our process. We're still bullish about the conversations that we've had, but you know, maybe it was easier two years ago, but I didn't have a time machine. So what does it matter? You know, at the end of the day. Well, in saying that, look, if it was two years ago, I know many companies that did raise two years ago are now experiencing other challenges, which are things like down rounds, right? So the grass isn't always greener on the other side, is it? Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, right? So I guess if I was out there and I'd already raised 10 or $15 million and I was looking for my next round, I think that's when it's really tricky right now, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Getting up to the closing minutes here, Mike, but before I let you go, a couple more quick ones. First of all, assume you have a crystal ball in front of you. You're looking into it right now. Five years time from now, what are, I guess, your, your wildest dreams for PLN and five years time, what, what does life look like in, in those wildest dreams? I think in five years time, PLN, and we're distributing live content 24 seven across our sports, multiple channels, you know, some of them spun off into their own successful businesses, you know, others were debating. I, I would hope that we're true to our mission that the content is still fun. It's a little quirky, but like highly bettable, but, but with a. People might look at it and say, hmm, that's a little strange, but dig a, a layer deeper and you'll see, you know, a business model that's been given a lot of thought and is actually very, very smart. And so I hope that, that we are true to that mission and we are producing that amount of content. That's really interesting and engaging. Awesome. That takes us to my standard closing question, Mike, which is this. If you weren't working on PLN, if you weren't doing anything around sports or media or in any past careers at places like McKinsey in a parallel universe, what would you be doing instead? I'd be a drummer on tour with the Dixie Chicks, believe it or not. That's oddly I've specific. Drummer, <laughs> I've been on drummer since I've been eight years old. And like, there's nothing like playing drums live for a band for me in front of a band. And like, I don't know, there's something about like well-produced music, whether it's like country or whatever. But I mean, the Dixie Chicks are, or the Chicks, I think you call them now. Sorry. They're uh, just, so, uh, it sounds so clean and the, the drumming is just so great that that would be my thing. Right on. Love it. And for folks listening that want to get in touch with you, perhaps any investors listening that might want more information about the opportunity or for anybody listening that wants to check out your products in market, can you quickly plug where they can go do all that? Yeah, sure. You can hit me up on, on my email, um, ms at proleaguenetwork.com. In terms of content, just check out our socials. Just check out the, our main uh, Pro League Network Instagram and our Kajitsu and our Slapfight uh, Instagrams and, and YouTube. Pro League Network is probably is our hub though. So that'll direct you whenever we've got a live event coming up that they can check out. Cool. I'll drop links in the show notes to all those, Mike. But for now, going to let you go here. It's Thanksgiving week. So we'll let you get to the rest of the work before you check out for the rest of the week. But really appreciate you joining the pod today. Really enjoyed talking about Pro League Network and wishing you guys all the best in the year ahead. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me.